Yes, I'm glad you bring this up because this is a very common misconception about Sweden, that Sweden is uh, a socialist country and a successful socialist country. So let's do what Sweden uh, did. Open societies tend to be successful societies. This is an argument made by Johan Norberg, an economic historian and author of the book, Open, the story of human progress. He joins me from Stockholm, Sweden. Johan Norberg, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. Thanks for having me. So you've written this book, Open, which I am almost finished reading. And it is very much a comprehensive history of economic and social development uh, across the world and the drivers of human progress. And your thesis is that societies that are more open uh, to trade, to outsiders, to new ideas as well, tend to be more successful societies. Why is that? Well, the first reason is that uh, even if you're the smartest people in the room, your room is always small. So the more use you make of the ideas, the um, energy, the innovations, the talents of other people in other regions, in other countries, the better off you are. That's why exchange in ideas, goods and services always helps you to, to make more progress. But it's also related to new ideas, to the creation of uh, new insights and new innovations. And that's why I think that openness um, at its heart, the most important thing is being open to surprises, not being fixed in your idea on how to do things, how to proceed, how to live, how to, to produce and trade, but always being open to the, the idea that the potential that someone somewhere will come up with a better way of doing things. And if you think that you haven't predicted everything yourself so far, then you benefit from being open. Okay. And in the book, you detail a number of areas in which openness is beneficial. Uh, but then you also contrast that with closed societies uh, that tend to be maybe more myopic or more inward looking. And this, you argue, is to the detriment of those societies. Why is that? Well, the basic problem with having closed societies is that it's um, you shut yourself off from what happens in other places. And um, that's why we can see that historically we've had golden ages, golden ages in all different civilizations. We've had them in um, the, the ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, the Abbasid Caliphate, the um, Song China and so on. And their common denominator was that they were more open to relative to, to other civilizations at the time, to new ideas from merchants and missionaries and migrants who who happened to appear there. They were at the crossroads between different cultures and civilizations, and therefore they could prosper by making use of the, the best astronomer over there, the best uh, producer uh, of textiles from over there, and then combining these things into new insights. Whereas the societies have shut themselves off, often in times of crisis when they've been fearful about the world, is that they've lost that access to what is going on in other places. And then you lose the ability to specialize, you lose the ability to benefit from new insights and new innovations from other places. And that's the start of, of stagnation. So Johan, I'm a big proponent of the Western values, of classical liberal ideas of 
individual freedom, uh, you know, treating people as uh, moral agents, individual moral agents rather than as uh, members of groups, um, and em empowering individuals with rights, uh, such as freedom of expression, etc. These are very much Western ideas, um, but that is not necessarily exclusively a Western concept. Uh, and as you show in your book, the West itself, uh, Europe in particular, went through periods of uh, closeness, of, of regress, uh, where it lost its knowledge, where it lost uh, its civilizational advances. So I think one of the takeaways that I had from your book was uh, to be a bit skeptical of this kind of cultural essentialism that some cultures are necessarily inherently more open and others are more closed. So, for example, Asia might be perceived as being more insular. Um, but actually that there are these cycles of history between openness and closeness. Yes, that's precisely the point that I'm trying to convey, that the struggle between open and closed is not a struggle between civilizations or nations. It's a struggle that goes on all the time within nations and civilizations, and even within individuals, I would say. And uh, at various points of time in history, we've gone through different phases and, and cycles. 1,000 years ago, if you wanted to look at an open civilization, you I think you would have to go to the Muslim civilization and to um, Song China at that time. Uh, we're much more open to new ideas, much more open to trade and migration, and also developing early versions of uh, sort of a Renaissance attitude to individualism and self-improvement. Whereas Europe at that time was uh, shut down uh, by um, orthodox religious thought and authoritarian rulers. So those things constantly change within our cultures and often in contrast to earlier episodes, because what uh, closed civilizations do is that they breed stagnation and uh, oppression and there's often a reaction against that. What sets Europe apart. And the reason why we call these ideas, these attitudes Western is that this is the one place where those ideas were sustained over a longer period of time after the, um, the Enlightenment and uh, with the Industrial Revolution and the birth of liberal democracies. For once in history, those ideas who had been present in all other civilizations, they managed to pull through and weren't destroyed by the churches and the kings and princes who wanted to defeat it. And uh, that's why it triumphed there. It was not destiny, um, which in a way it's a comforting thought because it means that those ideas can thrive anywhere in the world, I think. But it's also a bit of a, a warning because it means that it's not uh, necessarily true that those ideas will always be with us just because we have those traditions. Yeah, and inherent in that is this idea of competition. And I thought your commentary on the history of Europe was very interesting because in many ways there was a diffusion of power that there were kind of rival nations that were never really able to properly monopolize power over the whole continent. I mean, perhaps there was Charlemagne, when was it in the 800s? But, uh, you know, and there was this tension between the papacy and the various uh, kind of uh, nations and the, the royal families in those nations. Um, but then also, um, I think you said that uh, Europe, in a, in a sense, failed, but because it failed, it succeeded. Um, because no one set of ideas or orthodoxies could impose itself uh, on that. So I think essential to competition is also a commercial competition uh, and trade as well. 
what is the role that trade plays in these kinds of discussions around human progress? Trade plays two very important parts. Uh, first of all, it um, creates more wealth, and we can go into that uh, later on. But first of all, what I would mention is that uh, trade also uh, brings with it ideas on how to, uh, well, partly because uh, trade comes often with merchants and traders, and they are diplomats basically carrying ideas across borders so that they enrich their own societies by learning from others. Uh, but also because uh, inherent in every good, every service that we sell is an idea about how to how to produce it, uh, the, the scientific and the technological level. Uh, it's something that we learn from others when we, when we import goods and we learn how to do it ourselves. But when it comes, so, so that's one reason why historically um, successful societies have always been trading societies. Uh, they have always been at the crossroads in one way or another, and uh, therefore also benefited from ideas from more people. But when it comes to the economy, with the, the very simple way of explaining why trade is necessary for an economy to thrive is to think of it as a, as a machine, a machine in which we put the things that we are able to produce. So for example, I'm an author, I'm a lecturer, so into this machine, I can put books and I can put lectures. And then that machine almost magically transforms it into things that I'm not able to produce. Um, crops and uh, dinner and uh, microphones, computers, the internet, energy, uh, shipping containers to bring goods across uh, the world oceans and so on. So it's, it's almost magic because it transforms what we are able to do into what we want and need from others. So, and, and obviously if you have access to that kind of machine, you'll be better off than those who do not have access to such a machine because you can specialize in being a farmer and just put potatoes in there and you can get tractors and diesel and computers out of it. And that's why open commercial societies who trade lots with others, they can specialize and they can focus on what they do best and they can get more from others, including all those ideas that they haven't thought of themselves. So that's the concept of division of labor that goes all the way back to Adam Smith, but there's also the concept of comparative advantage as well. David Ricardo's idea of uh, you know, focusing on the activities that you're good at and leveraging that. But now, Johan, uh, this seems pretty uh, intuitive that you know, by trading, you can elevate your standards of living and gain access to new ideas, products, and services. But it seems to be that, that there's quite a, a hostile attitude towards trade in many parts of the world these days that uh, trade is blamed uh, for high levels of unemployment, for example, in the Rust Belt in the United States. Uh, there's a, a kind of suspicion within Europe around uh, free trade. Uh, the EU has quite high trade barriers, even though uh, countries are, are fairly free to trade internally. Uh, so why is there this kind of uptick in sentiment against free trade? I think this is also a cyclical phenomena. We've, we've always had periods of uh, distrust of trade and of traders. Uh, Lord Macaulay in the 19th century uh, said that trade, the greatest blessing for mankind, is everywhere despised by, by people. And I think one reason is that a, trade can be a disturber of the peace because it uh, brings with it um, 
competition from other places so that we have to improve what we are doing uh, back home as well. And, and some businesses that are uncompetitive, they will go out of business and people will lose their jobs. And that's what we see. That's the immediate consequence that we can see and hear about and read newspaper stories about people who the factory that was shut down and people who lost their job there. What's not seen is the the longer term effects, the fact that this results in us getting goods and services at a lower price. So it increases our purchasing power so that we can begin to demand other goods and services, better goods and services, and we can invest more in health and education and so on. And then people will be employed in those sectors. This is always what happens in dynamic economy. We replace old, worse jobs with new, better jobs. And um, we get a higher level of wealth and, and incomes generally in the economy. But we don't look at the world long term. We look at the immediate consequences. And especially journalists and politicians, they, they look at what's newsworthy. And that's the drama. And especially in a period when we, we've had uh, economic difficulties and we've had a pandemic, history speaks quite clearly in those instances, people become afraid of the world. And when they're afraid of the world, trade is always a great scapegoat. Yeah. And in many respects in South Africa, we're following that trend. We have a big push for localization from our government, the imposition of tariffs and duties on specific goods. And that just drives up the costs of inputs, particularly where you have global value chains, where uh, you're not producing everything locally that seems to be uh, adding unnecessary cost and, and barriers to to doing business yes this is a terrible terrible concept of this kind of, of localization really means that you deny yourself access to this magic machine <laughs> the trade is the whole point of that machine is that uh, you specialize in the areas where you can contribute the most where you, the things that you can do best, and in exchange, you get the things that you need the most. Well, localization means throwing away the machine, dismantling the machine, and instead trying to produce most uh, things by yourself. And we, we notice immediately, instinctively, I think, intuitively, how bizarre that is when we reduce uh, the level of localization from the nation to, say, the city. Why should um, Johannesburg um, trade with, um, say, the Cape Town? Uh, wouldn't it be better for Johannesburg to keep all the jobs back home and the same thing for Cape Town to do the same thing rather than being dependent on trade and, and import competition from the other city? Well, if that's the case, well, shouldn't every city block in Johannesburg do the same thing and, and focus on that? And if that's clever well why shouldn't every family produce all the things the clothes the uh, food the computers the um, books and cell phones that they need rather than trading with somebody else well obviously that would be a disaster because you can't specialize in everything you wouldn't be able to well, get much much done and uh, you would be incredibly poor the reason why We've created so much wealth around the world in the past um, 200 years is that we stopped trying to localize and started to benefit from ideas and production methods and technologies from other places as well so that we could enhance our own. 
So Johan, we had Stephen Davies of the Institute of Economic Affairs on the podcast, and I know you're familiar with his work. And one of yeah, the I'm a great fan of his work. One of the concepts that we spoke about, Stephen and I, was uh, that perhaps economists, advocates of free markets, have been a bit too glib about the political and social consequences of this Schumpeterian disruption and creative destruction that happens. Um, and you know, obviously. Politics is a reality. Uh, politicians are operating on short-term electoral cycles and could uh, be driving the, some of this blowback against uh, free trade because of some of these short-term effects. So I get what you're saying, that longer term, you're going to have increases in prosperity, and that's good for everyone. Rising tide is lifting all the boats. But how do you solve that short-term conundrum? How do you? Is that just a communication problem, or could there be other remedial actions that governments or organizations could take to, to soften that blow? Well, let me be very specific here and, and about what I'm saying. I'm not saying that trade has a bad effect short term, but a good effect long term. That's not at all what this means. Uh, it means that if you focus on the short term dramatic effects, then you will think that it's bad because you only see the things that are being destroyed by creative destruction, the things that we stop doing when we begin to do new things. But even in the short term, I would say that this is incredibly important to everybody, to the whole economy, because what it means is that we get on the net, not for everybody, not all the time, but for most people, better jobs, cheaper inputs so that our businesses become more competitive, more specialization means that we will get better jobs as well. And whenever we shut that down, we'll, we'll live with the, the consequences of more stagnation and of, of bigger problems. So um, yes, you can always say that if we were to stop this kind of competition, say in uh, manufacturing of uh, these particular headphone, airphone, headphones, um, you might save one job short term in that industry. But, and that's what we see, but you immediately lose other things. You lose the purchasing power of people who would buy those things for a at a cheaper price so that they cannot no longer afford uh, to buy things from other businesses, other domestic businesses as well. It's just that we don't see those jobs in the same way. And the difference is we then lose jobs in the businesses that could have been competitive and successful and helped us to create a stronger economy in short term. And we sacrifice those jobs for jobs in sectors where we're not as competitive. But yes, I think there is a point. Davis has a point and you have a point in that um, there are obviously always people who suffer from uh, any kind of change. It's not necessarily related to... Um, to trade, most often it's technological change. That's that's the most um, dramatic um, cause of, of job losses. And other things that we can do, yes, because with uh, more trade in a more dynamic economy, we also get more resources so that we can help those people to uh, get new jobs and give them some safety, some security in the transition. But then it's incredibly important to think about how we do this. Because we're not supposed, I don't think we should try to protect jobs. I think we should try to protect people. If we try to protect jobs, it just means that we subsidize the, the worst and most uncompetitive businesses that are a drag on consumers and taxpayers. Uh, but we can protect 
the individuals who lose jobs in those sectors by giving them um, some resources to retrain, to move to another job if that's uh, necessary. The, the old Swedish trade unions used to talk about it as the security of having wings, not the security of just getting a handout or just staying in your, your old job, but the security of having wings so that you can fly to other more competitive sectors so that you get a more sustainable and a better job long term. So Johan, you're speaking to us from Stockholm. And often I see, particularly in the Western media, many people uh, confidently asserting that Sweden is a socialist country and that other industrialized nations should follow the path of Sweden. Uh, but I, I think I've seen uh, some of your commentary to suggest that Sweden is anything but socialist or uh, primarily its foundation, the foundation of its wealth has been through uh, capitalism fundamentally. Uh, what is your view on, on, on the lessons from Sweden in terms of this broader discussion? Yes, I'm glad you bring this up because this is a very common misconception about Sweden, that Sweden is uh, a socialist country and a successful socialist country, so let's do what Sweden uh, did. Well, in that case, first, what you need is to have a 100 period of very free markets, uh, very free trade, very limited government. That's what Sweden had between 1870 and 1970. Uh, as late as the 50s and 60s, Sweden had a smaller government with lower taxes than other European countries and lower than taxes than the United States. And that turned us into one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. So that's what created the success, uh, successful Swedish economy. At that time, in the 1970s, there was a great temptation among Swedish politicians to start to do something with all this wealth. We were so wealthy, it seemed like everything worked out well for Sweden. So let's just redistribute it. Let's just spend it on, on everything, giving people more security, more handouts and subsidizing businesses and industries that we prefer. And then we had a 20 year period of experiments with socialism. And this is really what made Sweden famous around the world, because for a brief moment in time, it seemed like, um, look, Sweden is a socialist country, and yet it's one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. It seems to be working. Let's do what they did. But it's, it's very much like that old joke about how do you end up with a small fortune? Well, you start with a large fortune, and then you waste lots of it uh, in bad decision making. And that's really what Sweden did, because those 20 years in the 1970s and 80s, when we experimented with these ideas, doubled the size of uh, public spending. This was the economic disaster period in Swedish history, the only period in modern Swedish history when we really lagged behind other countries. We didn't create a single net job in the private sector, and we didn't get any new successful companies. On the contrary, famous ones like IKEA, they, had, they moved, uh, they left Sweden because taxes were too high, regulations were too uh, harsh. And it all ended in a financial crisis in the early 1990s. And at that time, there was a consensus from the left to the right to return to a more successful earlier Swedish model of more open competitive markets and a more limited role for government in, in business. And uh, after that, Sweden has once again outperformed performed other countries. So uh, yes, you should all learn from Sweden's um, 
brush with uh, with socialism because it has an important lesson to tell about uh, how it almost uh, destroyed us and also how the country has benefited from having globally competitive firms volvo ikea you mentioned as well but quite right uh, sweden has also been a member of the eu since 1995 and uh, i think that what is often lost in some of these discussions is that if you're in favor of openness of free trade, uh, necessarily you kind of get lumped in with the proponents of these supranational entities. And uh, I heard Elon Musk on an interview recently saying, the only thing less effective than a government is a group of governments. And I, I wonder about the efficacy of these kinds of bodies, uh, because they seem to also uh, have a tendency towards centralization, to bureaucratization, and actually stultivize and limits innovation and, and openness and competitiveness. What is your view on, on entities like the EU? Well, let's talk about the EU because uh, they're all different, <laughs> these, uh, these various organizations, and uh, they had to be dealt with in, in different ways. Uh, to me, the EU is a mixed bag. It really speaks to this distinction between how the battle between open and closed is fought between, in, in um, societies rather than between them, because there's a great idea about what the EU could be. It could be the four freedoms, the freedom for goods, services, people and capital to move across borders and you can go and study and live in other European countries and you can uh, and some people live in one of those countries and work in the other one without any borders in between. And that's fantastic. It could really be the best uh, version of Europe's history where we um, were good, some people cross borders rather than armies, and where we have different experiments then in policy, uh, because national policy could differ so that we see what's successful and what's not where do people want to go and work where does capital want to go uh, because uh, the business climate is good so that's the good idea about the eu and i wholeheartedly support that the problem is when you give power to um, bureaucrats and politicians they're bound to use it for uh, other um, uh, projects as well and there's this constant temptation in brussels and by national governments as well to centralize lots of decision making to brussels um, partly i think because they can do things in brussels uh, that they would want to do back home but they they don't have popular support for it but also there is this temptation not to allow experiments, but to standardize everything and to try to make sure that uh, other companies or countries do not compete in this, as we've talked about, this incredibly the essential uh, idea about Europe. What, what made Europe prosperous uh, historically was this competition between different political entities. Well, there is this temptation to standardize everything from our tax policy to our working hours to our minimum wages to how businesses proceed with their uh, local business decisions. And that's a nightmare. That's really what we have to fight against at the um, European level. So it's a mixed bag. Um, if we abolished all of that in, in Brussels, we wouldn't get rid of it because we would have that on a national level. And sometimes it would be even more custom made for domestic, uh, local, national businesses so, to, so as to avoid um, competition 
um, from other places. Um, so it's not really an either or thing, but it means it's a constant battle to, um, to keep uh, those decision makers in check, I think. Yeah, and look, I think you can also disaggregate some of the features of the system and identify the ones that work and others that don't. Like, I'm a bit skeptical of the e of the euro as a monetary policy instrument. I think that that's very insensitive to the needs of the kind of more local economies. You just have to look at how things went so badly awry with Greece, for example. And I suppose there's some instructive lessons for Africa there as we negotiate the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of hurdles to overcome uh, to see that implemented. But if we can focus on the good parts, the openness to trade, uh, the uh, lowering of, of, of barriers to trade like tariffs and so on, I think that we could leverage that. But creating some uh, overarching central government for Africa, I think would be an absolute disaster. I absolutely agree. And this is the important lesson. Um, openness and um, market integration from the bottom up so that people are allowed to to make more decisions and business across borders that's amazing it opens up the ability for more people to experiment with their local knowledge and their trial and error and adaptation to new situations and it will create wealth However, centralization across borders, where you're trying to impose superstructures or uh, one-size-fits-all regulations or currencies like the euro, it's a completely different beast because that does not open up for using and exploiting the knowledge of more people, of millions of people in, in different places. On the contrary, it reduces it to, to a small a small group of um, committee members and politicians, and they have to make everything right, because if they make mistakes, everything might collapse uh, across continents. And this is why we can't compare these two different attitudes to internationalization. One is about empowering people and creating more resilience because it is more based on trial and error. The other one is based on putting all your eggs in one basket, basically, and, and, and then putting it in the hands of, uh, of a few politicians and bureaucrats. And that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I'm often reminded in these discussions about the uh, apocryphal example, I think it was apocryphal, of uh, the Soviet Union shoe planners who there were these committees of very smart mathematicians and actuaries and so on who had to try to forecast and predict how many shoes were needed in the Soviet Union. And they would boil it down to a very precise number every year. And they always got it wrong. And that created either surpluses one year or, or mass shortages the other. And you just don't know what people's needs are, even something as simple as shoes. Some people exactly. might need and, and, heavy boots and, or light shoes, et cetera. Yeah, and, and we'll see the next... Uh, installation of this fallacy um, right now when governments all around the world say that we have to subsidize semiconductor production heavily because now we have a, um, a shortage and uh, car manufacturers they they sometimes have to shut down manufacturing because they can't lay their hands on on semiconductors well the fallacy is how would you know better than the market what to do yes 
everybody underestimated the increase in demand of semiconductors because we all underestimated the, the bounce back after the pandemic. So it's not that we suddenly have a sh uh, fewer of semiconductors being produced. We have more of them being produced than ever before, but it's just that we all want them for our Zoom meetings and for um, playing games and keeping ourselves entertained during the pandemic. And now, all those factories are rapidly scaling up production as fast as they can for pure commercial reasons. And at that point, in Brussels and in Washington, uh, politicians say, oh, look, there's a shortage of semiconductors. Let's spend billions and billions on subsidizing this, which only means that in two years' time, we'll have this incredible excess supply, this oversupply of semiconductors. And I think we'll see trade wars because everybody wants to sell their semiconductors and they don't want to buy anything from anybody else. So, Johan, how do you feel looking back over the last two years and the way that the world has responded to the pandemic? And you mentioned that, you know, we're now kind of opening up. Uh, do you think that there's some cautionary lessons from how various countries responded there? What have we learned from the pandemic? Yes, I think there are lots of lessons to be learned, and uh, some of them we don't know about yet, so we have to study this closely for, for a long time. I think one important lesson that we can see even now is that um, we should be wary of this kind of Chinese um, lockdown policy that everybody implemented around the world, in almost every country out of panic. Um, because every politician needed to be seen to be do something uh, about this. And whenever you focus all your efforts on just one thing, it's a disaster because there are no perfect solutions. There are only trade-offs. And when you lock down and shut down everything, you destroy economies, you destroy trade, you destroy schooling for kids. And we'll live with uh, the... Um, the consequences of that for a long time. Around 100 million people were thrown back into extreme poverty because of the pandemic and not because of the virus, but because of the aversion behavior, the lockdowns, the borders and um, the closed uh, policies that were implemented. And, and that was bad, especially I think with schools. That's something that uh, most nations now regret that they, uh, they took sometimes more than a year away from kids, they won't get that back. So, so that's an important lesson. Another lesson is that, and I think we've learned this from history already, that in a crisis situation, you sometimes you do things that you wouldn't do, have done otherwise, but you um, allow progress to be made in, in new ways. Obviously, when it comes to digital technology, telemedicine, teleeducation, things like that, we all knew that it could be done, but we just didn't want to go through the hassle of, of uh, trying to do it. Now, this was a time machine. We, we started to behave in a new way. And the best and the most important example of this, I think, is the mRNA um, vaccines, because we've... Uh, this has been a controversial technology for a long time. Businesses didn't really want to invest. Regulators didn't really want to accept this technology. Um, but now when we saw the stakes were high, suddenly regulators began to accept it. And it has been a triumph. We never before have we uh, developed a vaccine this rapidly. And that has opened up new and uh, 
avenues, um, new um, investments and new opportunities. And we now have clinical trials of using the mRNA vaccine against almost any kind of disease, um, different viruses, rare genetic disorders, even cancer. Uh, we can use the mRNA technology to basically turn our own cells into um, drug manufacturers. And uh, if that turns out to, to be the way forward, this could be one of the great health revolutions of all time. And that tells you something about how a crisis, the prospect of being hanged in the morning, as Samuel Johnson put it, focuses the mind tremendously. And suddenly you, you become aware that um, sometimes our old fears shouldn't stand in the way of the things that we could be doing. Yeah, and many critics of globalization pointed to the pandemic and said, oh, look, if the world wasn't so interconnected, then we wouldn't have had such a rapid spread of the virus. They overlook the fact that viruses used to spread anyway, like smallpox and and other things, uh, uh, but That's the right. effects were much more disastrous and the coordinated response, the ability of countries to share expertise, to rapidly uh, adopt new technologies, I think has been one of the upsides of, of globalization. This is an incredibly important point because they do have, a, there's a kernel of truth. Um, if we travel around the world every day, all the time, yes, viruses and bacteria will be traveling with us as well. And it could spread more rapidly like that. But, you know, when we got the Black Plague in the um, Black Death uh, in the um, 14th century, it killed, uh, it traveled a bit slower, but it traveled without any opposition and it killed a third to a half, according to some estimates, of all of all Europeans, um, and it kept recurring for th three, four hundred years until all vulnerable people were dead. The new thing, the radically new thing with uh, globalization, is that it has given us an opportunity to keep up with the microorganisms as well and cooperate across borders, so that. Uh, we can read, Chinese researchers could read the genome of the virus in, in just a week um, because of technology that had been developed on the other side of the world. And then can, they could publish it online for the world to see so that the best researchers in Berlin could come up with a test in just six days. And then drug firms and researchers could begin to poke at the, the virus and compare notes and co cooperate uh, to develop treatment, better treatments and vaccines in, in this way so that we had shots in people's arms within one year. That's an astonishing speed. Uh, when it came to polio and uh, when it came to smallpox, it took mankind 3,000 years uh, to develop a vaccine. Now it took us less than a year. That's, that's astonishing. And what about the free movement of people, Johan? Because uh, there's also quite a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. Donald Trump was a notable example of this. Marine Le Pen in France, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. These are populist politicians who are making a lot of political capital out of hostility towards foreigners. In South Africa here as well, many of our political parties are posturing and, and saying very negative things about immigrants, that they're stealing our jobs, etc. So what is the view, what is your response to, to those politicians and others who might be weary and hostile in terms of their attitude towards foreigners? 
Well, the, the case for migration is quite similar to the case for trade. It gives us access to more brains and uh, more hands to, to do our work and to help us to specialize and to innovate. And uh, there's a, a reason why um, we have seen societies that historically have been open to migration have also created um, more businesses and more scientific progress because you get a, uh, a melting pot of different ideas that can be combined in new ways. Um, they don't steal jobs, they get jobs, that's, that's correct, but the idea that migrants steal jobs would be similar to the idea of a um, bigger country with a larger population always having a higher unemployment rate than a smaller country with a smaller population. There's no reason why that would be the case. Um, they do get jobs, they do work, but that helps us to specialize and to improve the jobs that we are doing uh, as well. So that's a, a major benefit. In a way, it's like that trade machine again, um, more it's just that more people have access to that machine. What sets it apart, what migration is, where migration is different from trade is that um, it's not just the goods and services moving across borders, it's also the people. And uh, this obviously makes it more controversial because people are also visible and they come with their culture and with their language and their attitudes and it's a visible change of your society and that creates resentment it's it's uh, often created resentment historically as well we do get used to it after a while once we learned that um, they just want to most of the migrants are like most of us uh, just people trying to get ahead and create a good life for them and their their families and contribute to society. Uh, but it takes some time. Um, but that difference that they come with body and, uh, and mind as well, not just the goods and services, is also the reason why migration is potentially more important than trade. Because a lot of our knowledge is not verbalized. Um, it's, I mean, we can have meetings uh, digitally on Zoom, where we talk about something specific that we know about. But much of the uh, radical innovation that has happened historically comes from serendipity, the, uh, the unexpected meetings between minds and, and people uh, by the water cooler or on the market uh, or what have you, where people look at what others are doing and they just get an idea about how to do things differently. And that's what migration does. It helps to create those meetings. Sometimes culture clashes, but also culture enrichment. Uh, and I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have mRNA vaccines. Uh, the two big companies, um, uh, BioNTech, who uh, developed the Pfizer uh, vaccine and Moderna, they're both created by migrants who traveled across the world to a different civilization and um, who, once they were there, used their different background and different ways of looking at things, combining that with the knowledge that was at hand, and then created radically new science and, and technology. So it's not a coincidence that uh, migrants are overrepresented um, among uh, Nobel Prize winners. And 
Johan, I was struck in your book by a theme that, that ran through it like a golden thread, which is that individual freedom leads to prosperity. And I'd like you to comment about that relationship between those two concepts. And why is it necessary for individuals to be free to pursue their own economic ends? And how does that help to benefit society as a whole? Because we don't know how to benefit society as a whole. Um, and that's the problem with any kind of authoritarian leadership. It replaces a discovery process with the uh, decisions by uh, a tiny group at the top. And this is a, historically, a historical fallacy that we've seen again and again. Any kind of enrichment is about learning something new, coming up with new ideas on how to improve a production process or how to uh, produce something better, faster or cheaper for others and finding new markets for those products. And that, if you're looking for something, the best way of finding it is to set millions and billions of people free to go about and searching for it in their own way. And that's what we learn from technology history. Whatever you look at, it could be the invention of something trivial like um, the zipper or um, the bicycle or something complex as a personal computer or an mRNA vaccine. It's a complex discovery process of, it's not a bolt of genius and it's certainly not a committed decision. It's about thousands of people going about their own business, trying to find out a way of improving something. And then we get this process of clashes, combinations, trial and error, uh, feedback from uh, users and the market and pushback and adaptation again and again. That's how we end up with something uh, astonishing. And that's a reason why we need individual freedom, not because it's cute, it is, <laughs> and it's a, it has the moral <laughs> high ground, I would say. But uh, when it comes to hi world history, its main consequence is that people will then do things that we couldn't have predicted. People will surprise us because they've seen things and they've experienced things and they have local information that we wouldn't be able to predict. And um, when they do that, they will stumble onto all the things that make our societies great. And many people point to the example of China and say, well, look, uh, the Communist Party of China, they uh, have a strategic direction. They're driving economic growth. Uh, I look at it a bit differently. I see the, the Chinese growth model has been one of more openness, uh, at least since uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, took over and I think it was 1979 and, and liberalized the Chinese economy. But now with, with Xi, we're seeing a, a re regress back to that more kind of command and control model of the economy. That's exactly my interpretation of what is going on. China is a very interesting example of uh, these cycles uh, of openness and, and closeness. Um, it became one of the leading civilizations 1,000 years ago because it was much more open than European countries at the time and uh, had more of rule of law, more safe property rights and uh, experimentation and trade. Then the Ming dynasty came to power and said that, no, we want to make China great again by returning to the past, to what we once were and forced people to wear costumes that uh, were sort of 
the imitations of what they had 1000 years earlier. They uh, banned international trade on the pain of death. Then what Deng Xiaoping did was basically saying, enough. Uh, we want socialism, but not if it means that millions of people die from starvation. So what he did was not what comes down to us in the uh, Politburo's propaganda, and even some Western interpreters of what was happening, that he set China on a new path where he told people uh, about all the brilliant things that they were going to do in manufacturing and industry. No, he looked at what was already going on in a grassroots revolution where farmers had secretly privatized plots of land, where village enterprises had been created in, in secret because people were fed up with the old communist system. And Deng saw that this is working. So perhaps we shouldn't put them into labor camps. Instead, we should allow them to do this and even do it in more places, opening up the export processing zones and so on. So he allowed more experimentation. And all of these things came as then what they were, uh, entrepreneurs were doing and traders were doing, came as surprises to the Politburo and to the planners. But they accepted it between 1978 and roughly 2010. That was a period of, of radical openness, I would say, in, in China's history. It never uh, dismantled the, the dictatorship and the authoritarian structures, but it allowed for more experimentation. And the result was an astonishing growth period. And that growth period and that poverty reduction is now being ended by Xi Jinping, precisely because he does not like Deng's old open model. Instead, he wants to point people in the right direction. And if entrepreneurs come up with things in, in tech, in edu online education, in ga the gaming industry, he destroys them because that's what authoritarians do. And that's not a sign of strength. Um, it's, it's a sign of an economy that will be... Uh, if not destroyed, at least it will stagnate. And we've already seen that. Uh, China's growth is down to from 10% to 5%, and they need to more and more investments to get any kind of growth out of this model. So to, um, and that's at an early stage in China's history. And this is dangerous for China because uh, countries like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, they grew rapidly for another 30 years once they had reached China's present per capita income levels. So it seems like um, China is one big advertisement for what not to do right now if you want a thriving, dynamic economy. And we should definitely not learn from that model if we want dynamic economies uh, back home. Yeah, and I think the Chinese model shows that you can't have economic freedom without political freedom. Because ultimately, if you have too much concentration of power within the political elites, they're always going to put economic growth second, even though economic growth has been such a big driver of, of, of the Chinese uh, kind of vision, if you will. Um, you know, they're always going to make those short-term uh, calls. So Johan, I always ask my guests to leave my audience with some thoughts on how they can take some of the lessons from our conversations and implement them in their own lives. How do ordinary people go about introducing a spirit of openness into their interactions with others? Because we've had a pretty high level historical uh, conversation, but what does it mean practically for 
individuals in their day-to-day lives to be open? Right. This this is a great question because uh, it really starts within us. I think that this battle between open and closed is not between civilizations. It actually happens right in here because we have both those tendencies. We are open and interested in what goes on out there and in other people and how they can enrich our lives. But we're also cautious and fearful and we're quick to um, signal retreat uh, whenever we uh, think that something is going wrong and shutting ourselves uh, off from the world. So I think that the most important thing is to understand that we are like that. We have a couple of hundred thousand years of genetic programming that uh, gives us a certain confirmation bias and a certain fear of the rest of the world. And uh, it is oversensitive because uh, in evolutionary term, it has to function as a smoke detector. It has to give off a couple of uh, false alarms so that it never ever misses a real threat to our lives that the apartment really is on fire. Because um, 100,000 years ago on the uh, savannah, if we missed a sign that someone is up to no good, we really needed to, to understand that. So any cue that someone is on the other team, uh, is not loyal to us, is a stranger, might trigger the tribal instincts within us. So that's the first lesson. Understand that you too are closed in every aspect of your life, in how you look at um, other people's ideas, uh, when you look at uh, other business models and uh, proposals, and uh, when you look at um, an argument with your spouse, you always have a tendency to protect your own. And that's good. We need that kind of uh, protection. But we also have to understand that it's oversensitive. We're over fearful of the new and the strange. And to understand that that's the only thing that will long-term enrich us is if we learn about something new and strange that we didn't understand before, and it actually enriches us. It doesn't always, but uh, you have to look at it rationally and look at cost and benefits rather than just um, uh, acting, reacting instinctively against this. In your private life, in politics, in business, I think that's a, a key to uh, constantly grow, to count the number of times and count them as blessings, the number of times you've been proven wrong about something uh, and not to consider this a failure. That I think to me, at least I've learned that this is something that uh, makes me stronger uh, every day. Johan Norberg, I think you've made a very compelling case for why open societies are successful societies. And I wanted to encourage my audience to check out the book. It is called Open story of human progress. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I just wanted to thank you very much for sharing your perspective with us. Thank you very much, David. This was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this discussion and you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel. Also leave your thoughts in the comment section below. If you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well and leave a five-star review. Also share it with a friend or family member who may find it interesting. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.